Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Dead Horse Swamp and the Feather Tree Some years ago, when I finished my first mystery novel, Juckets, I sent it to a New York agent who, astonishingly, said she loved it and sent me a six-month contract to represent the book to establish publishers. I was, of course, elated and anxious and elated. However, the six months went by without success. At the end, the agent said she believed in the work and asked me to sign with her for another six months. I did, gratefully. After the second six months expired without success, she wrote to me that she felt she didn't understand publishing anymore and that she was going to quit the agenting business. I felt guilty for driving her out of her profession. Nonetheless, she wished me good luck and said she still believed in the book and she felt sure that it would find a home. But where, I hadn't a clue. If she couldn't find a publisher, how could I? So I put the manuscript away in a drawer and went on with my life. But after a couple of years, I pulled it out again, did some revising, and began to send out query letters. Most publishers didn't bother to respond. The occasional ones who asked to see the full manuscript also didn't bother to respond, or returned the manuscript with a typed note, sorry, this isn't for us, or no note at all. I put the manuscript away again. But it kept nagging at me. So after a while, I pulled it out again, did some more revising, and gave myself a challenge. I vowed that if I didn't find a publisher for the book the following year, by a certain big birthday, I was going to give up writing altogether. Week after week, month after month passed as I received rejection after rejection. So by the time that birthday arrived, I felt quite defeated. I remember that it was an autumn day that birthday, bright and crisp. I left the house to do some errands and automatically checked our mailbox at the end of the driveway. Then, and this is absolutely true, on that very day, the day I was truly going to give up writing, I found a large envelope in the mailbox with a publisher's address in the left-hand corner. At first I thought it might be another return, but it didn't seem thick enough for the manuscript. I opened the envelope with mixed emotions and read the cover letter. It was a contract for the book. I signed it immediately. It wasn't a major publisher, but they printed the book on demand in paperback. Not entirely without errors, and not with all the pages in order, or with all the pages, period. I never made more than a few dollars on the royalties, and the publisher ultimately went out of business. But I felt that the cosmos was telling me to keep on going, persevere, be resilient, and don't expect perfection or fame or fortune. I never have had a major publisher. I never have made more than a few dollars on royalties, but I have kept going. And I have never expected fame or fortune. Good thing. And yet, let me relate a very recent incident. I was at a holiday craft fair this morning, as I write this, in a little church basement in our little town. I look forward to going there every year with the express purpose of buying pecan pies from a woman who, in my opinion, makes the best ones from a Martha Stewart recipe. I arrived early and waited in my car until nearly 9 a.m., then joined the line that was quickly building up before the door opened. Among the 50 or so shoppers, there was a conversation about the weather, 
sunny and crisp the way a November day should be in New England, the coming Thanksgiving, who was cooking and who was traveling, and what to buy when they got inside. One particular woman was there for the ready-made food baskets she liked to give as presents. Another was there for the huge wedges of Vermont cheddar cheese that was always displayed at the same table. I didn't want to reveal what I was there for just in case it would be gone before I got to the pies. But I was the first to reach the bakery tables and bought my pecan pies, two small and one large. Then on to the breads, where I bought a Japanese milk bread, which I'd never had before, and cakes, couldn't resist a cranberry orange loaf, and lastly, onto the colorful cookie platters. As I was contemplating which of the table full of cookies I'd choose, a woman whom I couldn't place, I'm increasingly poor at that, came up to her fellow cookie baker and said cheerily, this is a local author, Joyce Walsh. The other woman allowed that she was pleased to meet me, and I said I was pleased to meet her as well. I mentioned the podcast to the first woman, and she seemed keen to hear about it, as she liked listening to audiobooks. Then, balancing the plate of homemade cookies with my shopping bags of pies and bread, I left the building feeling almost as happy as if I'd won the Pulitzer. That someone recognized me as an author and made it known to her friend was both humbling and flattering. It certainly felt like fame, and it was enough. As for my work after Jackets, I didn't plan to write a sequel, but I did. That became Swamp Yankees. Nor did I plan to write a sequel to that, but I did. That became Bogman. Since it was now a trilogy, I called it the Pitsley County Chronicles. And I didn't plan to write a conclusion, but that is exactly what I'm doing. It will be the fourth and final book of the Chronicles, and I'm calling it Dead Horse Swamp and the Feather Tree. All four stories originate with a disappearing community of people who live in what used to be a rural part of Massachusetts. These are people locally called juggets who are insular and self-sufficient. They are woodcutters, drive big equipment, backhoes, tractors, snowplows, bulldozers that they often have to repair themselves, work on factory lines, clean houses, mow lawns, paint barns. They own their own modest one-story homes many of which they built themselves next to each other. They are mistrustful of government on principle and of outsiders by experience. They are resourceful in every way and have less in common with urban New Englanders than with their colonial ancestors, but without Puritan restraint. When I said disappearing community, I didn't mean in terms of numbers, but in terms of their insularity. Education, television, internet, social media, in that chronology, have reached everywhere and changed everything. There really is no more insular, and successive generations behave more like each other and less like their parents and grandparents. My idea in the beginning was to create a snapshot of this community of juckets before it disappeared, then the Swamp Yankees, then the Bog Men and Women, a way of life facing extinction. And I wrote the stories against a backdrop of a mystery loosely based, in fact, of a cult of outsiders who sacrificed young girls for a religious ritual. The main characters appear in each of the books, but in the previous three stories, the focus is on the crime solvers, veterinarian Adam Sebesky and psychologist Julia Arnault. Elmer Goodson, Adam's cranky old reclusive friend and mentor, is a secondary character. In this new story, however, Goody is the principal character. There is still a murder mystery and a finality to the saga, but the tone is different. 
I'll read a little bit of Jackets and then compare it with Dead Horse Swamp, which I'm still working on. This is from Jackets. For three centuries, Pitsley was forgotten territory. At its height, it was a stop along the old coach road to Cape Cod, but it was bypassed decades ago by the new highway. And so it stayed from that time onward, unaltered. That is, until one Connie Cranshaw recognized that city people would drive an hour and a half to work in Boston if they could come home to live in the country. So it was once all farms and woodland was now being transformed into a bedroom community, or rather a back door of Metropolis. New houses had gone up on practically every street, and not the kind of shacks that Adam and Cutter lived in, but big two- and three-car garage homes with paved driveways and brass lamplights. As the new people moved in, they began inexorably changing the landscape, as though the things that attracted them in courtship after wedlock became irritants. The piggery was the first target. Neighbors in the upscale cul-de-sac down the street mounted a protest to the selectmen, then on to the Conservation Commission and further to the Environmental Protection Agency. The piggery closed. Then the newcomers voted an override to raise taxes because more children were in school now and they needed more teachers, classrooms, computers. Cutter said it was rumored that town water and sewage were going to be discussed at an upcoming planning board meeting. Hell, they'll be wanting sidewalks next, Billy murmured. Now, there's an irony, because in this actual town, fictionalized years ago in the book, the Commonwealth has just mandated that sidewalks must be added to the two-lane country road that will soon convey traffic to a new railroad crossing. Sidewalks. The theme of modernization, regulation, and government intervention runs throughout the Chronicles. Each character deals with the intrusion in a different way. The character Cutter manages to identify as a Wampanoag native to New England, and he acquires tribal land to build his own community called Liberty Nation. Goody deals with the intrusion of society by retreating from it. I'll read you some of his story. This is a chapter called Ghosts. Sometimes... When he was bent over to pick summer squash from his garden patch, he'd look up and find her at the end of the row. Sometimes he would see her looking back at him, expressionless, through the window of his makeshift cabin. And sometimes, when he sat outside husking corn, she seemed to hover among the pine trees, just out of reach. Did she actually watch him, he wondered, or was she merely like a dandelion seed, gliding on breezes wherever they took her? Poor murdered girl, Janine Bradburn. He'd been the first to find her buried in the woods, but he'd left her there in repose for others to unearth. That was over a year ago, and they never did catch all the men involved in her death. There was still one left. Nothing he could do about it. Rubbing his arthritic knees in the warming sun, Elmer Goodson breathed in the aroma of wild blueberries. He lived alone in Pitsley Woods, away from town, away from people, from everything. His past, present, and future were sometimes indistinguishable from each other. And although he was still alive and Janine was dead, they existed in the same dimension. Then, last week, there came a second girl, swirling around Janine as though playing Ring Around the Rosie, while there was no substance to her, it was unmistakably Donna Quint. There had been searches in the woods two months ago, 
The chief of police, Carson Burke, came to Goody's cabin to ask if he'd seen Donna, but he hadn't. Soon after, lost posters with her picture appeared everywhere. The posters were now fading in the sun and rain and beginning to tear around the thumbtacks that held them pinned to the telephone poles and trees alongside the road. Their edges curled like dry leaves. The 15-year-old girl who appeared before him was intact, unlike the decomposed body she would now be. Her brown hair was long and floating as though she were swimming underwater. She wore, he imagined, the same pink top that she must have worn when she ran away from home. Goody had no problem believing in ghosts. It came ancestrally to him. While he was mostly from Jucket lineage, which was hard scrabble and pragmatic, much like Appalachians, his maternal great-great-grandmother was an Narragansett and would have prayed to the Great Spirit. His paternal great-grandfather was Cape Verdean by way of West Africa and likely believed in many spirits, good and bad, that somehow didn't conflict with his Catholicism. Goody leaned toward animism, believing that everything has a spirit, be it humans, animals, plants, and even places. He respected all of them and talked to all of them. It wasn't as if he expected them to speak back, but he believed he was communicating something, sound waves, vibrations, something elemental. He spoke to the chickens that scratched the ground for grubs. He spoke to their eggs, to the squash, the trees, everything around him continuously, and to the spirits. He even spoke to the sway-back, overworked horse that drowned in Dead Horse Swamp and appeared before him, sad-eyed, on winter mornings. Poor brown horse that the Swamp Yankees hitched to a skitter to log out the white cedars in the swamp when it froze over. They drove him onto the ice and piled the logs onto the sled. The ice cracked like lightning under his hooves. They ran to safety, but he couldn't. Too late. Too late. Poor horse. He hadn't told anyone about Donna's spirit, or Janine's, not even Adam. Was it because it was pleasant to have a female presence to look at in his old age? He wasn't prurient, nothing like that. More like nostalgic. They reminded him just a little of a woman he might have married. He was a recluse now, yes, but there was a time he was young and in love. Maybe he didn't tell Adam because he didn't want anyone to think he was batshit crazy, because he saw things that weren't there and talked to inanimate objects, even if he didn't expect them to talk back. If people knew that, they might dump him in the hallway of some purgatorial nursing home. While he didn't think Adam would let that happen, the future was essentially unknowable, and what if something happened to Adam first? As Goody sat in one of the two Adirondack chairs he'd made many decades before, situated on the cement patio he'd poured so long ago, he thought about all the things he used to do that he could no longer do. There was no regret to his thoughts. He planned for his elder years, just as each summer he planned for winter. Everything that needed to be done would be done. After that, it was out of his hands. The next chapter begins, There are spirits, and there are spirits. Even though Goody had remained sober for over 30 years, he kept a jug of Liberty Juice on the shelf of his kitchen. He'd probably never drink it, but he believed, like Cutter Briggs and his community in Liberty Nation, that government didn't have the right to regulate spirits. You're very quiet, Goody, 
He'd almost forgotten that Adam was there, seated in the chair next to him. Just thinking. About what? Nothing special. When Goody looked at Adam, he saw the boy he used to be, not the man in his early fifties with strands of gray hair beginning to show around his temples. After Adam's father, Goody's best friend, his only real friend, died, Adam became the son he'd always wanted. Goody had emptied into Adam all of his knowledge about the forest and the natural world, all except his belief in the spirits. That Adam would have to learn for himself. You ain't spent time in the woods for a while, Goody commented by way of rebuke for Adam's absence. I've been busy. Adam shifted in his seat. You need to spend more time in the woods. I know. Adam took a deep breath and looked up at the sky. Goody followed his gaze and the two men settled into their own thoughts. It was a bright, clear blue sky in the middle of July with only a few clouds as white as catalpa blossoms. Who would have thought such a southern-looking catalpa flower would bloom in harsh Massachusetts? But like a pilgrim, the northern variety, catalpa speciosa, survived in transplant, took root, and flourished. One of them right now shading Goody's outhouse with its huge heart-shaped leaves. Most New Englanders called it the popcorn tree for the clusters of white blossoms it produced. They also deemed it undesirable due to the layer of disconnected flowers always carpeting the ground in summer and the profusion of long bean pods dropping down in autumn. The tree harbored ravenous caterpillars from the sphinx moth, Ceratomia catalpi, that Goody had to battle annually to prevent them from consuming the leaves. It was, he felt, a fair trade in order to enjoy the showy trumpet flowers when they opened. Not all things had to be utilitarian, his universe allowed for things whimsical as well as ironical. What it didn't allow for was randomness. Random events, he thought, were caused by the limitations of the human mind. Goody knew the Latin names of most of the plants and trees around him. For all of his life, he'd pretended to be illiterate. It was a kind of camouflage, but the truth was he read books the way other people watched television or used the computer for hours every night. Mrs. Dudley who brought his weekly meals on wheels, was also the town librarian, and dessert was always a book. Most often it was a book he requested, but periodically he would let her surprise him. His taste ran to botany, biology, ecology, and the natural sciences. Her surprises were always fiction. Over the years, he'd read many of the major novelists, playwrights, and even essayists. But Mrs. Dudley was planning to retire at the end of the year, and he worried about who would succeed her. What if her taste ran to romance and horror? Mrs. Dudley was sworn to silence about his secret vice, but could he rely on the honor of her replacement? No one knew that he was a reader, not even Adam. He wasn't even sure why he kept it a secret. Maybe a harsh bird call interrupted his thoughts. Catbirds are back, Goody noted, scanning the trees. They wait for my high-bush blueberries to ripen. Then we race. Do you win? Not much, but I like their company. What's that? Adam asked, nodding toward the outside corner of Goody's cabin. There was a cylindrical, upright, white enameled metal object which sat on a bare claw burner connected to a propane tank. Just an old water heater somebody threw away in the woods. What are you doing with a water heater? You don't have running water or even electricity. What do you need a boiler for? 
Goody merely rolled his eyes. Oh, hell. Adam looked at Goody, then at the water heater, then back at Goody. Is that what I think it is? Goody smiled a rare smile and rubbed his chin. You made a still out of it? Goody shrugged. Since when are you drinking again? I ain't. It's for my friends. There's still personal consumption, ain't it? If I don't sell it. What are you cooking? Potato peels? Corn husks? Whatever. Is it ready? Not yet. Don't worry. I'll save you some. I'm calling it swamp tea. Adam chuckled. Then reaching into the breast pocket of his denim shirt, frayed now around the collar, he said, I almost forgot. He pulled out a business-sized white envelope. This is your mail. I had to sign for it. Goody assessed the envelope in Adam's hand, made no move to take it. He could see it was addressed to Mr. Elmer Goodson, Pitsley, Massachusetts. Goody didn't have a mailbox, and the only mail he got was a semi-annual tax bill in care of Adam. His Social Security check went directly into his meager bank account, for which Adam was the co-signer. Who's it from? Doesn't say it's a Boston address. Don't know anybody in Boston. One way to find out, Adam flicked the envelope in front of him. You want my knife? Goody didn't bother to answer. They both knew he had a hunting knife and a black leather sheath that never left his belt. Goody scowled and took the letter from him as though it might explode. He studied the return address, Hyde Park Avenue. He'd never been there. He put the envelope into his flannel shirt pocket. You're not going to open it? He didn't feel the necessity to satisfy Adam's curiosity. What he felt was a sense of foreboding, and he didn't know why. Ain't nothing good going to come of this, he replied. Don't be such a pessimist. Maybe it's a birthday card. When is your birthday, anyway? Goody ignored the question. Or maybe, Adam said with an impish grin, it's one of those invitations to dinner where they try to sell you retirement planning. How's your Julia? Goody asked more out of distraction than interest. He knew Adam and Julia were a couple, but she wasn't his wife yet, so he didn't feel he had to accord her any special status, even though it was her life he'd saved when he shot Floyd Mather. She's working as a forensic psychologist with the state police. Uh-huh. Mostly cases involving children. Goody pondered that information. Nobody never did find the bodies of the other little girls that were killed. There had been at least four or five, but none of their ghosts haunted Pitsley Woods. Adam shook his head. They're not in here, Goody concluded. Probably not. But you got all the other killers in that cult. Supposedly. Goody turned his head to look Adam in the eye. Adam shrugged his shoulder. Minus one. Who? You know who. There had been a series of kidnapping murders, but the kidnappers, Floyd Mather and Babe Ampley, were dead. Goody had shot Floyd himself when Floyd tried to kill Adam's girlfriend, Julia, and the cult, using the girls for a ritual sacrifice, had been disbanded, the members killed or imprisoned, except for one. Adam had always thought Connie Cranshaw was involved. He just couldn't prove that the man who raped Janine Bradburn's mother was also guilty of killing her daughter. As Goody looked towards the trees, he watched Donna floating around a tall pine. Got a question for you, he said. Besides Donna Quint, are there any other young girls missing? Adam shook his head. None that I know of. Why? Just wondering. Are you going to open the letter? Yeah, yeah. Goody slid the knife out of his sheath and slit the top of the envelope. He pulled out a single sheet of paper folded into three sections. He opened the letter and read, 
He then passed it to Adam with a frown. You read it. The letter was from a lawyer's office in Boston, explaining that that scrap of land that Goody lived on, bought by him from Joshua Pitsley as a landlocked half-acre over 40 years ago, wasn't actually his. Goody had paid Joshua a nominal sum for the land, but the deed was never registered. Neither of them thought it necessary. When Joshua died in testate, Pitsley Woods, including Goody's patch, was acquired by the town for back taxes. The Pitsley selectman didn't want it and ultimately sold it to a developer. But the developer ran into a problem with endangered species and couldn't develop it. It was Adam who found the endangered species that prevented Connie Cranshaw from chewing up the woods for houses. Goody knew it. The Town Conservation Commission endorsed it, and the developer forfeited the land to the Commonwealth and took a significant tax write-off. The state wound up with a parcel of swamp and forest it had no use for. The notice Adam held in his hand, however, declared that the Commonwealth was now in the process of building a rail line from Boston to the south coast. A track was going to be engineered through Pitsley Woods. Elmer Goodson's plot wasn't even on the map. There's something called adverse possession, Adam explained, meaning that if you lived here and worked the land for a certain amount of time, it legally qualifies you as having a right to be here. But that applies when the land is in private ownership. When Pitsley Woods was transferred to the Commonwealth, the clock started over again, and I don't think adverse possession will hold now. So they're going to try to make me leave. I don't think you'll have a choice. Goody's gaze followed the two spectral female figures as they dissolved into the woods. Donna Quince here, he said, in Pitsley Woods. Alive? Adam asked anxiously. Goody shook his head. Do you know where she is? I mean, her body? Goody cocked his head. Searches have been all through the woods after she disappeared, Adam continued. They didn't find anything. Goody shrugged. Did they go into the swamp? And that's how the book begins. I have a couple more chapters written, and there'll be lots of revisions, and I hope to finish the draft manuscript by next summer. One never knows, however, what might intervene. As Robert Burns so accurately wrote, the best lay plans of mice and men gang after Glay. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back for the next podcast. Hope is the thing with feathers. It's a lighthearted story because, well, I feel like it. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.